It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm James Wilson. Today we're looking at Venezuela, where citizens voted on Sunday for a constituent assembly which would have far-reaching powers to reorganise the country. Joining me on the line to discuss that is Gideon Long, our Andean correspondent, who's in Caracas, and from Miami, John Paul Rathbone, our Latin America editor. Gideon, let me start with you, please. Can you just perhaps tell our listeners what exactly this Constituent Assembly was all about? Well, I think to understand it, you have to go back to the elections of 2015, when the opposition in Venezuela won a majority in the National Assembly, which is the democratically elected parliament. So ever since then, Mr Maduro has found it difficult to pass measures through Parliament. Earlier this year, the Supreme Court effectively allowed him to bypass Parliament altogether. And that's what really started this current wave of protests back in March, which have continued for these four months. Mr Maduro is angry by the fact that he's continually being blocked by the Democratic Assembly. And so he's tried to set up this alternative assembly, a constituent assembly, which will have 545 members. And that's what the vote was for on Sunday, during Sunday's election. The constituent assembly, it's very difficult perhaps for listeners to get a grasp of what that could actually do. Just tell us a bit about the powers it would have in Venezuela. It would be the highest legislative body in the land, in effect. Is that correct? It would. When you usually think about the Constituent Assembly, you think about an assembly which comes together with a specific purpose, usually to redraft or to draft a new constitution. That's what most Constituent Assemblies have done in the past. But this body goes far further than that. It will be able to dissolve the National Assembly, the Congress. It will be able to rewrite the Constitution. It will be able to scrap all future elections and it will be able to draft its own laws. So it's a much more powerful body than most constituent assemblies that have been assembled anywhere else in the world. And I think it's important to point out that it doesn't have a fixed term. Mr Maduro has not said how long this body will stay in place. And the fear is that it will become a permanent fixture in Venezuelan politics and a sort of rubber stamp parliament to pretty much pass through any measure that Mr Maduro wants. What did the opposition do with regards to this vote, Gideon? How did they approach this? Obviously, they controlled the National Assembly. They were blocking things for Mr Maduro there. What was their view about how to participate in this round of voting? Well, when the president first announced the assembly on May the 1st, the opposition were divided. There were basically two schools of thought. One is we boycott it as a farce. The other is we take part and we can actually win this. We have so much support now and Mr Maduro is so unpopular that we can actually win this. In the end, it was the former chain of thought that won out and the opposition decided to boycott the process entirely. That's why there weren't many people turning out at the polling stations on Sunday. The downside of that, of course, it means that all of the Assembly members now are supporters of Mr Maduro. Most of them are members of his own Socialist Party. But as we've seen, there's been an international outcry over the Assembly itself, and it seems as though many governments will not recognise it as legitimate and have decided not to recognise the results of last week's vote. John Paul, can you help us to understand a little bit more the international response, the criticism that's arisen about Mr Maduro's plans? Well, the response was swift and widespread, and it was basically condemnation of this bogus constituent assembly. The US, Canada, the European Union, all the large Latin American countries 
said they wouldn't recognize the vote, which raises an existential question of if this is the highest legislative authority in Venezuela and most of the world doesn't recognize it, which are the legitimate institutions in Venezuela? And then the US prior to the vote had said, if it goes through, we will be escalating the series of sanctions that we've been placing on officials within the regime. And they followed through with that earlier this week when the president himself, Nicolas Maduro, was sanctioned, joining the heads of state of North Korea, Zimbabwe, and there are two others. But it's a small and very select club. And as you'll see, just by the short list of names I mentioned, that all of those people, of course, although they're sanctioned, are very much still in power. Presumably, Mr. Maduro couldn't really give two hoots about the US move. He's presumably sort of, in effect, thumbing his nose at the fact that sanctions have been applied. Yes, I don't think Mr. Maduro has got very many assets in the United States which are frozen as a result of the sanction. It's sort of a feel-good measure for the United States. It's a sign that it wants to try and follow through without really pushing up the tension. And other senior members of the government have also been sanctioned. Whether this accelerates a move towards a transition to reinstatement of free elections as properly understood in Venezuela is another matter, because if you're a sanctioned official, you may in fact feel that your only option is to close ranks ever tighter still with Maduro and his cronies. It sort of exposes, doesn't it, John Paul, the real lack of effective alternatives for the international community. What more could they do in terms of applying perhaps more effective sanctions against the country as a whole? Or is the school of thought that that would be counterproductive and affect the suffering Venezuelan population? Well, I think there are two things that could happen. And one is desirable and one isn't. I think for these targeted sanctions to have some teeth, they need to be multilateral, really. It's not just the United States that has to be stepping in here, but other countries in the Americas and Europe, so that Maduro and the government can't just point to US imperialism and chortle amongst themselves. If the European Union, Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, where Venezuelans, members of the government, do have assets and links, if they are sanctioned by those countries, that would send a very different message. The second one is the U.S. could, in various ways, ban the import of Venezuelan crude oil into the U.S. Venezuela is the third largest foreign supplier of oil into the U.S. market, and the U.S. accounts for half of its oil sales. If the U.S. was to do that, that's viewed as the nuclear option. And although Venezuela might in time be able to find new markets for its oil, it would have an immediate and really shocking effect on the economy. The problem with these kinds of sanctions, of course, is that in the past, in other countries, say Cuba, it's the general population that suffers. And the last group that suffers is, in fact, the government. And also, if the U.S. was to do that, this would play straight into the old Latin American U.S. playbook of U.S. intervening in domestic affairs. And however merited that intervening may be, it draws on a wellspring and long history of resentments about it. Indeed. Gideon, John Paul was reminding us there about the significant amount of oil production in Venezuela. And of course, this was a hugely wealthy country by Latin American standards not so long ago. You've been in the country for a while. Can you just give us some flavor of how much the economy has suffered during this many months of crisis and conflict in the country? Well, I've seen a noticeable difference in Venezuela, certainly in Caracas, between my first visit, which was towards the end of last year, and my most recent visit. The city looks more dilapidated, things feel more run down, people seem more desperate. 
And the figures would back that up as well. The Venezuelan economy has tanked 28% over the last four years. It's expected to have contracted by about 35% by the end of this year. Those are the kind of figures that you only find in war zones in places like Syria and Iraq. So it really has been quite devastating. And just to give you one example, I've been here just 10 days or so. In that time, the Bolivar, the Venezuelan currency, when I first arrived here, there were around 8,000 Bolivars to the dollar on the black market. There are now around 12,000. That's in the space of around 10 days or so. So massive hyperinflation as well. In terms of the food situation, there is food on the supermarket shelves, not everywhere, but it is possible to get food. The problem is that nobody can afford to buy it. So it's a desperate situation economically for ordinary Venezuelans. What is the mood then as a result of that, Gideon? Is it a sort of mix of despair on the one hand and perhaps defiance on the other? How do you think people are approaching this situation? I think that's exactly right. There is defiance still and the opposition is still calling for people to come out onto the streets. But there is also some measure of despair. Some people are saying, well, look, you know, we've been at this for four months now and we haven't really achieved any of our major goals. We haven't seen the freedom of political prisoners. In fact, the opposite has happened. More people are being imprisoned, as we've seen over the past few days. We haven't got rid of Maduro and we haven't managed to stop the Constituent Assembly. So there is some measure of despair and some measure as well of people saying, well, look, you know, I would like to be out on the streets protesting, but... I need to work. I need to earn a living. I need to feed myself. So there's some measure of realism as well, which makes it difficult for the opposition to rally everybody behind their cause. And just to follow up on that point about the arrests, there was a couple of significant opposition leaders taken away to prison by government troops just a couple of days ago. Is that correct? That's right. Just yesterday, Leopoldo Lopez, who is the best known political prisoner in Venezuela, was taken back to jail. He was in jail for three years from 2014 for allegedly organising protests against Maduro's regime. He was released at the start of July and placed under house arrest. But after less than a month, he was arrested yesterday morning and taken back to jail. And he's not the only one. Antonio Ledesma, who is an opposition mayor, was also taken from his home in the middle of the night yesterday. And several magistrates who are sympathetic to the opposition have also been arrested, at least three of them. And three more have taken refuge in the Chilean embassy, and there is a chance that they will be seeking asylum. So I don't think that these arrests are just one-offs. I think they're likely to continue, and we will see a broadening crackdown on opposition figures. John Paul, it's a very tense situation. The Constituent Assembly will shortly meet for the first time. What do you think are the main things that the Maduro regime will ask it to do? Everything is so vague and improvised. We're not 100% sure when the Constituent Assembly will first meet, supposedly tomorrow. There's no particular agenda that's been published, just a desire to bring peace. In the frame will be economic measures. First of all, ban the democratically elected National Assembly using some bogus language. Second, and now that it has authority to do whatever it wants to do, the economy is an oppressing issue. So perhaps approve a sign off on some Russian joint ventures that have been in the works for a while and could provide a source of funds. The National Assembly is also required to issue debt. Venezuela is not going to find any takers for bonds in the international market or, or very, very, very few but it may be able to issue debt locally into this, as Gideon was mentioning, near hyperinflationary environment. And then basically maintain a veneer of legality over this increasing thuggishness, where, as you were just hearing in the dark of the night last night, two opposition figures were rustled out of their homes and in their pajamas pushed into paddy wagons. 
Do you see any room for compromise or for resolution that could ease this crisis in the short term? Well, at some point, there will have to be a negotiated transition to another state, because that's how these things, in the end, resolve themselves. But at the moment, the emotions are too high. The Maduro government has sort of backed itself into a cul-de-sac. The exit costs of these sanctioned officials leaving are very high. And the opposition at the moment is on the back foot. Maduro controls all the institutions. The other night, the army came out. There's been a perennial question mark about the continued loyalty of the army, but the head of the armed forces came out and said that he supported Maduro. So at the moment, it looks as though it's going to carry on as is. And as is basically means continued steady deterioration of the social and economic conditions in Venezuela. And then there could also be more political deterioration as well because of this sheer lack of institutionality where actually it's, it's unclear what really is the highest authority in the land. De facto, it's the Maduro government, but legally it should be the National Assembly, the democratic elected National Assembly, which is about to be banned. So pretty chaotic situation. Chaotic indeed. John Paul, thank you very much for joining us. And Gideon Long in Caracas, thank you also to you for taking part. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye.